I'm Jake Lippman, and I'm the producing artistic director of an independent production company, Tongue in Cheek, in New York City. And I'm Maria Maloney. I'm an actor, singer, and I have a parallel career in real estate that allows me the opportunity to satiate my creative sense of self through singing and acting gigs in the evenings and on weekends. And full disclosure, none of that has been happening successfully in COVID. <laughs> Which is kind of why we thought maybe it was time to start a podcast. Yeah, I love it. And we've worked together now over five years creatively. Oh God, that's crazy. So in 2015, I was um, adapting a book that I love called The In It Like Divine into a play with music. And the story called for this character, Robin, who was very sincere and had to be a great singer. And Maria came in and auditioned for the role and she was perfect. So we cast her and she and I played together on stage and we worked together subsequently on several other plays. So now, five years later, in the middle of COVID, she sent me a movie and mm -hmm. she said, I don't think it's any good, but here's something that I made. And I watched it and it was funny. It was heartfelt. It was um, insightful. I said to her, God, this is exactly the kind of thing that I think people need to be inspired to do right now because we're in this creative lockdown and you can't go into a rehearsal room with other people. So I think it's really cool that you made your own work, Maria. And that's one of the reasons why I thought would be well suited to talk about creative pursuits together. I love it. I love it so much, particularly because in this time, I have many creative outlets that I hadn't been giving attention to because they just weren't in the front of my mind. I was ignoring the small joys, build one on top of the other and, and turn into a big joy. And so I took a film class and I was thinking, who am I to take a film class? I'm not a filmmaker. You aren't until you are, you know? Right. It, well, exactly. And that's that's the way it is with everything. And I thought, you know, the, the end product of the class was to make a three-minute film. But you didn't have to, right? It was, it was a no-pressure type of class. And I thought, oh, well, I'll take the class and I'll learn a lot, but I'm not going to make it. I just won't make the film. I won't make the film. It'll be fine. Like, oh, it's fine. And then I... I the second class, I thought to myself, I, should, I have to make a film. Like, why not make a film? Why not? <laughs> That's why I'm laughing. It's like, why take a class if you're not going to do the thing? Sometimes you get so scared of, of looking bad and your ego really wants to protect you. And, and that's exactly what the film is about. I thought, why don't I make a film about the struggle that I'm having right now as an artist, which is I don't identify as a filmmaker. So I have no business making a film. Mm -hmm. And that is such poppycock. Yeah, it really is. So I made this little film called Chicky, which is about my inner chicken and how she's very sneaky and talks me out of really great ideas and keeps me small. And yeah, it was a terrific experience. And not that I think I'm going to continue to be making more films, but I do feel like I want to dabble in playing around and just being joyful and experimenting and creating. And that's, that's really the whole point. When you're creating something, there's always an undercurrent of joy that's happening. And for you too, Jake, I mean, you are the epitome of always be creating. I mean, you have a full-time job and you have this amazing theater company and you're always up to something. It's so interesting before COVID struck and everyone was doing everything at home. I felt like I had two lives. I had my job. And then after that, I'd go to rehearsal or I'd go out with people. And I just love that being out and feeding off of that creative energy. And then COVID happened and I started a new job two months ago during COVID. So everything kind of 
screeched to a halt with my creative pursuit. And I was okay with that because I was concentrating on this new job. But in the background, I was, I had this nagging, like, but don't forget that thing you do. Don't let that muscle atrophy. And I've wanted to do a podcast for many years and I didn't hear anything out there exactly like this right now about what people are doing in light of COVID, what their creativity looks like when there are some restraints. And I actually love restraints when I'm producing. So a podcast, it doesn't take much. You need a decent mic, you need GarageBand, Zoom. So I thought, oh my God, I have to do this. And I wanted to do it with you because I think of you as just so joyful. So that's why I, I thought it'd be great if we had conversations. And I envisioned us interviewing other creative people and anyone that has a creative streak and maybe who surprised themselves. I love that you stepped out of what you were comfortable doing and took this class on making a film. Just like I'm stepping out of the box of what I know to do and doing this podcast with you. I, I, I don't really know what I'm doing here, but at a certain point, you kind of have to stop researching and you just have to do the thing. Ooh, that's juicy. So what was the what was the point in your career that really was the deciding factor that made you go for wanting to start your own company? I finished grad school in 2004. And prior to grad school and college, I'd played a lot of children because I'm short. And <laughs> I was very youthful looking for a long time. And then I suddenly uh, wasn't. You're still very youthful looking. <laughs> well, yes. I looked 13 until I looked 27. You know, it was almost like a switch. And so I was trying to figure out what my type was. And I knew I was sort of a character actor and I didn't want to play children anymore. And there was another actor I'd gone to grad school with and she and I produced a play together. And I had never produced before, nor had she. And at the end of it, I realized that being organized, making a spreadsheet and tracking the rehearsal process and everything, I was good at that. And I think my friend was less into that. We produced one more play together. But between the first and the second show we produced together, I realized I think I could be really good at this. I'm organized and I care about it. And I like being the deciding factor. And that's grown over time. But by 2006, I'd started my own company. And that was just a function of there's a play I'd always wanted to do, The Baltimore Waltz by Paula Vogel. And mm -hmm. it had a great part for me. And there wasn't a part for my friend who had produced these other two shows with. And she said, I, you seem to really like producing. You should go do that. And that was my first show for Tongue in Cheek. Wow. And since then, I've done 40, more than 40 productions. It's a lot of work, but I've almost spoiled myself a little bit because I have an expectation of what I think is the right level of professionalism and how I want things done. Well, sure. And you took everything that you as an actor really appreciated about being an actor in a production and translated it into how you run your production company. And I mean, you wear so many hats. You also direct, you're a terrific director. I love you, you as a director. I trust you so much. And it's a lot for actors to have directors that they love to work with that they really trust. I mean, you wear so many hats, actor, director, producer, writer. I'm so inspired by you. You know this. I'm a huge fan. I fan girl over you, you big time for your integrity and everything that you put into your production. It's always how you would want to be treated. That's the thing about right now with COVID. It feels a little bit like collaboration is harder because we're bridging this gap. Every production I've been in with you, the castmates, friendships that I still yeah. have from five years ago, just everyone just so compassionate and and giving and sharing and being collaborative and i just always think to myself how do you 
find the people in the room and decide that that's the group that you want. Well, I have a no asshole policy. That's number one. So (laughs) if someone mistreats my stage manager or whoever's monitoring at an audition, then it's over. But if a person comes in and they're nice and they really seem to care and ask questions about the thing, then they're already engaged. And it's like a job interview. Like that's the benefit of callback too. You get to see people mix together. Are they generous? Are they kind to the other people in the room? You want to keep working with people who are like that. So if I like you as a person and there's some essence to you, Maria, that works for this character, then it's like a pretty good likelihood that it's going to overlap and you're going to be able to infuse this character with what you naturally have. You just want to keep working with them. So I want to ask, when did you first start performing? My mother is the liturgical director at our church. So growing up, I always wanted to canter at church to be the soloist. But my mother was always really hesitant. She didn't want anyone to think that she was playing favorites. So we agreed that if I could manage to win the school talent show, everyone would see that I could sing and she would let me canter. And uh, she helped me prep for the talent show. And I was supposed to sing Tomorrow from Annie. You know, I knew Tomorrow from Annie would be very cute. But what I, I wanted to win this thing. And I thought, well, I really need to sing Eternal Flame by the Bangles because it has that high note at the end. <laughs> you know, obviously my mom was like, that's a hard no. That's whatever. And so I pretended to prep Annie. And at the very last minute, I sang Bangles eternal flame. And it brought the house down. I mean, it's funny because this was really the first of a few phenomenons I've experienced in my performing life when, you know, I finished the, you know, and eternal flame. And I finished and I, I looked out and it was absolutely quiet. And, and little eight-year-old me thought, oh no, is no one going to applaud? And I looked over at my mother who was sitting in the back row, whose face was so red that I <laughs> she duped was her. She was so mad that I duped her and embarrassed. And she must have seen this look on my face of, oh my gosh, no one's going to applaud. Mom, you're going to applaud for me, right? Mom, are you going to applaud for me? And she was the first one to save me. And of course, the entire auditorium like rose up in a rally of thunderous applause and cheering and just total pleasant surprise that I actually had some talent, you know, that I actually could sing. And so that was really the start. And then voice lessons came after cantering in church, which was my reward and and then children's choir and then more intense voice lessons. And it was just pure joy. And I I did experience, the the next time I experienced that phenomenon again was when I was in college and I was performing in my talent in the Miss Westchester University pageant. (laughs) Oh my God. So what song did you sing then? I sang an opera piece because I was studying classical music. That was my jam. I sang Mimi, I think, from uh, La Boheme. And... I remember after I was finished, you know, little little me, five three me, standing on the stage, and I looked out, and it was so quiet. And I thought to myself, "Oh no, they they don't like opera. They don't. They didn't like it." And I remember I looked over to my mom, and she started clapping, and then everyone started clapping. But it was like such a strange phenomenon. I know that when you're performing, it's it feels like a lot longer than it actually is, of course, but. That's happened a few times to me where I think this is such a good 
knock for my ego for me to have these moments of, was it good? And then, (laughs) and then also to think afterwards, you know, how much of that performance was for me and how much of of that performance was for them and constantly being aware of that, that negotiation that Mm -hmm. it always needs to be for me. It always well, it sounds like you were actually so caught up in it. Yes, exactly. That you were fully throwing yourself into it. And then only then when it was over, then you're like, oh, I'm, I'm back on earth. And then yes. wait, wait a second, why am I not hearing anything? And everyone needing to applaud you. It's very Crazy. cool. It's very yeah, cool. That is cool. It's very heady stuff. So yeah. you studied classical singing in, in college then? Is that what you majored in? I did. Well, I majored in theater with a concentration in voice performance, and I really thought I was going to go into opera. What was yeah. it about opera? You said it was your jam. I think it's it's so it's such a bizarre feeling to emote while you're singing high seas. It's just like the the music is written just like in a script. Do you find the subtext in a script? Do you find the subtext in the words? That's the actor's job. With opera, the subtext is already there for the singer. And so when the subtext is giving, that accompaniment is pushing you, it's actually pushing you into that space of that emotional space. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not ready to go there, you're going there because you're about to sing these huge notes or you're about to revel in the belly of the deep notes and it's almost impossible once you start really studying that and being aware of those sensations in your body and I think that's what's so tremendous about opera is that it's almost impossible to be disconnected from your body and your emotions when you're you're in it and it's it's very cool it's very buzzy it's a buzz for sure yeah I totally get that yeah So when did you move to New York? I moved to New York in 2004 (laughs) after I had graduated college, undergrad, and I wanted to go to a performing arts school in the city Mm -hmm. called AMTA, the American Musical Dramatics Academy. And so I studied there for two years. And then I started booking booking work and, and gigging out and going on tours and coming back to the city and then doing regional theater and coming back to the the city was always my landing spot until finally I didn't want to live out of a suitcase anymore. And I wanted to satiate my type A of Mm -hmm. wanting to pay my bills and have a, have an adult life. That's how I got into doing real estate as my, I used to call it my survival job, but now I've been calling it my thrival job. I like that. Yeah. We talked about this. I, I think that's a good way to think about it. Before we get there, though, I do want to, how did you transition? Mm -hmm. Have you been doing opera all along and I just didn't know it? Or did you make a decision to kind of change towards more musical theater? I changed towards musical theater really because I was so young. I was in my, you know, mid-20s and I didn't have a lot of confidence. Mm -hmm. When I studied, I, I did some intensives and I found that the people in the opera world were really intense. And and I'm sure looking back now, it was with good intention, but it turned me off because it was, it felt so uber competitive mm. and, and in a nasty way. 
Yeah, it was very unsupportive. And again, that could just have been my journey or what I needed to find out for myself to get get where I am now. But it just didn't feel like the kind of community. Mm. I was really looking for community. Mm-hmm. So and did you find that with musical theater and straight plays? Yeah, absolutely. I found that. That's the type of community that I was looking for. I found there. I did do some opera workshops for a couple summers, which were really very cool. And so musical theater were really where my home was because I I had a better sense of community there. And yeah, I just just loved it. So I've heard about a bunch of different ways in which your creativity has evolved. And before COVID happened, how would you have described yourself in a nutshell before? And then let's come up to now. I feel like I'm still in it, of course, but... Yeah, me too. <laughs> definitely would say... You know, before COVID, I was willing, I was happy to be defined as an actor, singer who has a survival job in real estate. I really loved that definition of myself. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because it's like, of course, mm-hmm. it's great to have a steady job, but I think there are parallel careers that I could pivot into that would could probably serve me a little better that have just been so terrifying to pivot into because like we were talking earlier with the film, I'm afraid. Mm. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of looking bad. I'm afraid of failing. I mean, the good news there is I've been trying a lot of those things in COVID. And (laughs) just on the other side of that fear is total understanding and compassion with myself and really taking the time to do it. And when did you sign up for the filmmaking class? I think April was the first month. I took like six classes in April, all Zoom classes, obviously. Yeah. But I thought, why not? I took acting classes. I took movement classes, acting for the camera, you know, for the film, yeah. self-tape classes, just anything that I thought would be good, helpful for me to really spend the time on all the things that I was I wouldn't have had time otherwise to do. Right. I mean, we're fortunate we're gainfully employed right now and you're at home all the time. So were you scared of any of the other classes that you took or was this film oh, one? Yeah, I was scared of all the classes I took. <laughs> it's like we talk ourselves out of so many things simply because we're afraid of looking bad. And I think the beauty is go in with the the goal of looking bad and then right. and come out with having gained so, so much. Yeah. How do you keep a leash on your time management? Like how do you have to write and produce and also have a full-time job that you're committed to and then do everything the way you do one thing? Like how do you manage Something gives. I don't sleep a lot when I'm doing a show, but it's so funny. I'm sitting here this whole time thinking I've been so, I feel lazy during this time. Like I didn't take you know, a bunch of classes. I did start a new job and I wound down a job I'd been at for 14 years. And it's just a lot of energy going towards that right now. But I ha- I mean, I don't feel the same level of creativity that I do when I have outward accountability, when I have to show up for rehearsal. You know, it's always nerve wracking before I decide I'm going to do a play. But once I've committed and I've booked a theater for a date for performance, then it's on my website. I've told all these people, once that train starts, I'm j- I jump on it and I'm going. But right now, there's nothing like that. Like, it took me, you know, twice as long as I wanted it to to have the conversation with you about getting this podcast going, you know, 
I read this book like months ago about starting a podcast. So I don't feel that same sense of like, I, I got to go, 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 go. And I'm sitting here enjoying this so much. And right before, you know, I got off the couch to set up everything in my computer, I was like, oh, why am I doing this? In my head, I, I was basically talking myself out of this, even though I know it's going to have the best time ever talking to you. And I have everything I need for it. So like, what's the worst that's going to happen? Like mm. we record something and three people listen to it. The unknown is extremely scary to me. And anytime I have to be creative in a new way, I, I'm... I, I know I'm bad and I'm scared that everyone else is going to know I'm bad and anything I've done before doesn't count. Huh. So how do you talk back to that fear when it bubbles up for you? Where do you begin? How do you talk back to that fear? I'm sure there are a lot of people who will be listening who are thinking, oh my gosh, that's Let's me. hope there are no people listening. No, just kidding. <laughs> no. That's <laughs> your it's so fear funny. Talking. You know, as you're saying it, like it sounds to me like you have the wherewithal that you talk yourself out of those situations. But I think I'm more external than that. Like I end up talking to people about it and in mm. the process of talking about it, because I think I choose wisely who I talk to about this thing. Mm. You know, I usually come around or they, they comfort me in such a way. Like, for instance, I finished writing the first draft of a play and we're going on vacation together and I wanted everyone to read it aloud. And Philip suggested it, my husband. And I said, yeah, maybe. Like, you know, there are seven parts and there are going to be five people. So I don't know. And he was like, we'll double up. Like, like, duh. And so I'm talking out of, right? I'm talking out of it. I'm talking out of it. And I was like, it's, it's really long. And he was like, how long? And I was like, it's, it's two hours. And he was like, it's COVID. What are we going to do? We're not going to the town pool. He's a good foil for my bullshit. He said, hey, when you wrote Relentlessly Pleasant, which is a play I wrote two years ago, the first uh, draft was utterly mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> which I love because he didn't say it was garbage, but he said it was mediocre. And it, it, had, it had some kernel of something that spoke to what I eventually wrote, which I'm very proud of. But, <laughs> you know, like I was like, oh, so if this play I wrote is even mediocre, that's probably okay. Like it's maybe it's worth everyone's like spit to speak the words. It's aloud. just so funny to me because you just said that you felt so lazy during COVID and then you just told me that you finished a this giraffe. This play was months in the making, though. I mean, I basically started writing it late last year. So I've only written you know, a handful of plays. I don't have a lot of experience. Like, I'm always looking for, this is going to sound so rudimentary, I kind of want like a Mad Libs version of what a play should be. Like, I wanted to say, act one, scene one, character's conflict is at the four. <laughs> act, act one, scene two, um, the antagonist appears and tells them they can't have the thing. You know, act one, scene three, there's a funny twist. Like I want it to be prescriptive and I want to just plug and play and like follow a workbook and fill in the blank and then, and then have a play that's awesome. Why don't you do that? <laughs> Why don't you make the Mad Lib? I don't feel like I'm skilled enough to, oh. to, to, to do that for plays. I've always written things that with other people helping... I haven't been writing plays for so long that I feel something I'm an expert in. Whereas producing, I can't say that I'm an expert, like I'm not a Broadway producer, but on the indie theater thing, I feel like I have this like muscle memory of what I need to do. Whereas playwriting is more of a, you know, really in 2015 when I adapted The Annette Lake Divine and I subsequently wrote Relentlessly Pleasant, that's when I was like, you know what? I actually am a writer. I will call myself a writer now in a That's way that awesome. I hadn't before. And 
So when you start to feel stuck or frustrated with your progress, right, on the journey, do you have any go-tos for how you try to break out of it? I look forward to writing. Like I might spin my wheels and start over a bunch of times, but I like sitting down at my desk and I like having a big cup of coffee and Mm. kind of knowing, oh, I can spend as much time as I want with this. But I haven't been able to do that in my current situation. My new job is uh, starts at 8 a.m. I get up early and I go for a long walk Mm. and then I start my day like an hour earlier. So, you know, the, the amount of time that I feel like I could spend on that is gone from that part of the day. And maybe that's part of why I feel like I haven't been as creative to just do one thing that was strangely harder and that's okay. And hey, no one's producing theater anytime soon. So I've got a long time, a long runway if I do want to turn this into something else. But like part of that is unnerving to me because I like having a deadline. Mm. I do better with a deadline. That's right. Restraints. You work great with restraints. So, so all of these questions I have to turn around and ask you, like, what do you say or do to yourself when you're feeling stuck? I've been learning new tactics inside of COVID. You know, I I get annoyed a lot easier. I, I don't know if it's just because I I don't have the outlets that I used to have. I didn't have the walk to the subway to cool down. Or I didn't mm-hmm. have the subway ride to think or noodle over something or talk to myself in my head about it. So I've been doing a lot of dance parties lately. <laughs> Hey, describe. I need to know everything about this. Uh, A friend of mine actually gave me this idea. The science behind it is that if you're feeling an emotion, right, the you feel an emotion like a wave, it moves through your body, your body physicalizes it and just can't, you're just like, oh, that's still in my brain or that's still in my body. Like, I just can't, it's annoying me. I just can't get over it or I'm feeling stuck or whatever it is. I put on... The Backstreet Boys or Lizzo. Lizzo's been my go-to lately too. Lizzo's good. Lizzo's good. And for one minute, I dance like a crazy person. And like, like the, just the emotion is like blazing out my fingertips and doing my hair flips and I'm twerking the best I can and just like laughing and giggling to myself that if the guy across the street is watching me right now, he must be thinking that I'm an insane person. And it's so, it's so joyful. I mean, it's impossible for you not to laugh to yourself. And it really does feel like you're getting it out. You really are just getting it out. And it's a reset. And then I have to consciously choose to not go back there again. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's another dance party or something, right? But do you see it um, coming? Yes, Mm -hmm. I see it coming and I resist it, which is so interesting. It's like, God, I'm such a funny human being. No, it's, it's, it's almost heartening to know that we're predictable in that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally predictable. But I also, I sometimes get resentful if I'm like not able to do what I want, you know, like, yeah. a, like get mad because I wanted to write and now I have to do this instead. You know, I have to feed myself lunch. So I'll put it on my Google Calendar. I call my Google Calendar my Google Queen. <laughs> So anything that's in the the queen, anything that the queen says, something that I have to do. And then it just gets out of my head. I call it magic time, which is just an hour or two here and there when I can. For me to get away from my devices, put my phone on airplane mode, do not disturb, and do something creative. I've been painting. I'm not a... I know. Who knew? That's awesome. I had no idea. Yeah, I know. Me either. 
So what do you do? Like, what's your setup for that? For the magic time? It can be anything. Like when you're, when you're painting, do you have all the materials? Do you, did mm-hmm. you start using white paper from your printer? Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly how I started. I pulled out a piece of paper from my notebook and started using my markers and my crayons. And then I thought I'm going to get an, an acrylic paint set. See? And now a piece that I painted last two weeks ago, my partner, John was, he, when he came in, he says, Oh my gosh, that is beautiful. And I said, it is. <laughs> Yeah, waiting for the applause. It's the same thing all over again. And I was like, I had no idea. I mean, I liked it because I painted it. So I I think it was great. And now it's hanging on our wall. Had I not done that, you know, there would be there would be a blank spot on the wall. I mean, I know that sounds so kind of like. No, it doesn't at all. Don't don't dismiss it. You don't want to. You don't want to give to the blank spots on your wall. You want to you want to fill them. You mm-hmm. want to fill yourself up however you can. And what happens is through that experience, you know, the brain chatter stops for a little bit. That is That magic time has been a game changer for me. Well, I think we've had a pretty great conversation. Anything else you wanted to cover today before we wrap up the first episode of Always Be Creating? I, I am so excited to be continuing this conversation and I can't wait to share with our listeners other ways to find joy in their daily lives. Always be creating. I love it. Thanks so much for having me, Jake. I'm so excited for oh this. Oh my goodness, Maria. Thank you for doing this with me. I wouldn't want to do it with me anyone either. else. either. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Always Be Creating. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jake Lippman, with original music by Philip Rothman of NYC Music Services. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review Always Be Creating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 